Is anyone besides me feeling untalented? <laughs> All in one family. It's just not fair. I'm yeah. yeah, I think you brought a little to it, too. Thank you, folks. Thanks for leading us. What a, what a hopeful song to consider a world will, that will be free from sin and sorrow. That will be our normal life. Not this. That will. We look to that day. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. Tonight we're continuing our study of this great 44-verse chapter, which is the account of David and Nabal, or Nabal, and Abigail. And last week we looked at the first half of the chapter and began to notice the the development of some very humbling themes that run all throughout Scripture. We noticed most particularly last week that even God's greatest servants need a Savior. They need saving. But let's remember the story so far because we're not going to read the whole chapter tonight. Once again, we come to see David facing hardship because of the sin of someone else. Can you relate to that? Are there any problems in your life because of someone else's sin? Well, David is facing hardship because of the murderous, jealous pursuit of King Saul. And David and his men, his 600 men and their families are still in the wilderness and they get hungry out there. There are no Chick-fil-A's, there are no coffee superstores, though you must take me. So can we sort this out afterwards? I have not... So, so they, they need supplies, and so David, uh, according to custom, had the reasonable expectation that he could get financial and material help from Nabal, who was the richest guy in the land. But even though Nabal was rich, we saw last week, that does not mean that he was a successful man. And like so many today, Nabal was a success in the eyes of the world, but he was a fool in the eyes of God. Let's make sure we get that distinction right. Last week we saw how Nabal's extreme greed and foolishness affected the lives of those around him. And we even tried to surmise how we should respond in our own relationships if we find ourselves suffering because of the foolishness of someone else. But the fact remains that Nabal refused to help David. And so here we see David, the man after God's own heart, a man who just showed staggering, famous mercy to King Saul just one chapter ago. Back in chapter 24, what's he doing? Taking a few steps backwards. Can you relate to that in your walk with the Lord? One step forward, two steps backwards. So often that's what it feels like. David's response to Nabal's selfishness and his evil was uncontrolled rage. We see David sinning again. The man who showed patience and suffering and godly self-control and how he treats his enemy just back in chapter 24 has now decided to take 400 men, 400 soldiers, to slaughter a whole household over what seems to be, I think, a minor offense. Oh, what fickle, how fickle the human heart is, isn't it? Even in our own spiritual growth, we 
are immune. We are, in our own spiritual growth, are we not prone to the ups and downs of human nature? I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Yesterday, David was able to show incredible restraint and mercy while sparing the life of King Saul. And now today, he wants to slit, he wants to slit the throats of an entire household. Brothers and sisters, we cannot live on yesterday's successes. Just because we're faithful today does not mean that we will be faithful tomorrow. We will never reach the place, we must never reach the place where we can be satisfied with our spiritual growth. We must never grow content in our progress in godliness. For what man really knows how much evil remains unexercised in his heart? I mean, who among us is immune to temptation? Just tweak the circumstances and all sorts of wicked things come out, right? Who among us is beyond the skillful reaches of Satan's schemes? Of course, when it comes to David's life, this up and down roller coaster spirituality, this is not unique to this part of his life. This is the story. It's not an isolated incident. It's David's biography is full of inconsistencies, which as we saw last week, serves something as a spiritual comfort to us, knowing that other people struggle, even great and mighty David, but also a cautionary tale to those of us who see the same tendency in our hearts. Prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our spiritual inconsistencies remind us how desperately we need a Savior and how totally dependent we are on the mercy and the grace of God, not just to save us, but to bring us home. Oh, I hope that you did not begin your Christian life trusting in the Lord and now try to do it on your own. It will lead only to frustration. Well, tonight we will go back. We're going to get to go back and see how the rest of the story plays out. In some of David's behaviors, we're going to be compelled to imitate him. And in others, we will be wise to learn from his mistake. Which brings us back to the main idea of this chapter. Even the choicest of God's servants are desperately in need of saving. Tonight, we'll see the saving power of God magnified as he saves us, not only from the sins of others, which he does, but also from ourselves. And tonight, we're especially going to hone in on God's providence in the midst of David's sin, which I pray will cause us to marvel all the more at the skill and thoroughness by which Christ saves his people. All right, does that sound like a plan? Well, let's read the text together. Let's start 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 32 through the end of the chapter. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal and said, And behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. 
And his heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And kept, it, kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David took Anahiam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask tonight that you would give us understanding that you would open our eyes to see what is beautiful in your word, that you would convict us and call us to change, that we would trust in you more. I pray, Father, that to that end, that my words would fall to the ground, blow away like leaves, and be forgotten. Just let your word, let it be heavy and let it remain. Let it take up root in our hearts and bear fruit to the glory of Christ and to the good of your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. Tonight I'd like to draw your attention to several lessons or several themes that emerge from this text. First, please draw your attention to this. God's providential restraint of David. God's providential restraint of David. That's a major theme in this text. This is a story that is dripping with testosterone and egos. Right? If you were here last week, we saw how God was working as David and Nabal are in this massive uh, skirmish with each other. But then God, see, God sends, as we saw last week, a savior in skirts to the strong but gentle person of Abigail. And as we saw last week, Abigail has found herself in a terrible position. She's married to a fool. And so she was forced to take decisive action, actions that she shouldn't have even needed to take. But Nabal was sinning. But David was also sinning. And so God raised up Abigail to save her own family, but also, I would say, to save David and his family. In verses 18 through 22, Abigail comes and she takes decisive action to go behind her husband's back and overrule him and give David the supplies that, excuse me, that her husband should have provided. Then in verses 23 through 31, we see Abigail, we hear her speaking. We've heard of her beauty and of her inner character, but we're seeing that her exterior beauty is overshadowed by her inner beauty, that she is a woman of wisdom and character. And specifically, through her actions, God restrains David. This is a major theme in this text, and it would be careless of us to miss it. So let's look how many times it's repeated. Look down at your copy of God's Word, first at verse 26. 
The Lord has restrained you, Abigail is speaking, from blood guilt. And then verse 34, David is speaking. The Lord has restrained me from hurting you. Again, verse 39. Blessed be the Lord, he goes on to say, who has kept back his servant from doing wrong. We have another example there in verse 33. Either way, the point is clear. David was running headlong towards sin. But God providentially restrained him. There are several different lines of comfort and instruction for God's people here. First of all, do you not see God's providence in this ho-hum, everyday sort of problem? God cares about your problems. And he's working. And by providence, I mean how God provides for his people. How creative and how mysterious and how various are the ways that God works to employ all sorts of aid for his servants. He is so skillful and so creative to help his people in all different types of need. And not only does God providentially work to get David the material resources he needs, did you notice that? But he goes much further beyond that. He actually gives David the spiritual resources of grace that he needed even more. Both David and Abigail interpret this action of God for us. God sent Abigail. Did you see that? Look again at verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Here we see God wed together his various mercy to deliver David from his external problems and his internal problems. I mean, David had problems, right? I mean, real problems. 600 men he needed food for because he was running from a murderer. You got problems? I know. But David had some serious problems, right? But David's biggest problem wasn't simply Saul. David's biggest problem was David. David didn't merely have a man with a murderous heart chasing him. David had a murderous heart inside of him. And God was willing to save him from both. Oh, how often we fail to see our own sinful hearts when our lives are full of problems. It's so much easier to see the sins and the problems of others. The Apostle Paul was very skilled at this. He was far more aware of the danger that lurked in his heart than you and I often are. Do you remember Romans chapter 7 verse 24? What wretched man I am who will save me from this body of death. But this is what is so amazing about the mercy and the grace of God. That is exactly what God does. God saves sinners from sin. Sin is not, don't mistake it, don't, don't mess it up. Sin is not simply something that exists outside of you, like in the Las Vegas murderer, or in the people in Iraq, or terrorist. Sin is not something that simply exists outside of us, it's in us, and it's active. Our biggest problem as sinners is not that other sinners do bad things to us, or that we simply make bad decisions. The biggest problem in your life is not your spouse, it's not your kids, it's not your boss. Your biggest problem is you. And until you and I recognize, until we own that fact that our lives as Christians 
are full of problems, in part because of our own sin, our lives are going to be full of frustration. You're going to blame everything on other, and you're going to be miserable to live with because you're going to think everybody else is the problem and not you. Because you'll be waiting on everyone else to change, all the while God is working to change you. See, this is where the great news comes in. Since God saves sinners from sin, God can save sinners from outside sin, but God can save sinners from themselves. That's why Paul goes on to say, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we see that sometimes God's saving providence includes us, includes literally stopping us from our own foolishness. Isn't that a comfort? There are times that God has literally stopped us from our own stupidity. In God's mercy, he worked through Abigail to keep David from committing a tragic sin. How kind was God to frustrate David's sinful plans? How kind is God to set up roadblocks in your life to keep you from doing more foolish things than you would have done? Oh, I pray that he would be diligent and gracious in saving me from myself. And we should be diligent to pray this prayer for ourselves. Oh God, keep me from myself. How similar is this to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. It's especially when evil comes from within. While this is certainly no license to sin, I think that we're right to expect the Lord to answer this prayer often. For God is by nature a Savior who saves sinners from their sin. So may we be a people who cry out day after day that the Lord would keep us even from ourselves as he changes us. In fact, for us as parents and grandparents, this is an application for us. This is a prayer that I pray so often for my children who are not yet wise enough to know the danger of their own hearts. Lord, protect my children from their own hearts. Don't let them be successful in their sin. Guard them from their own foolishness and keep them from evil. Abigail's response also teaches us how to be a godly friend and how to be a good counselor. You don't have to have a certification. You don't have to be a pastor to be a counselor. We're all counselors as we speak to one another. And Abigail gives us a great example of how to be a wise counselor. You see, so often, in fact, I would probably say that most of the time, God delivers this providential mercy, this, this mercy to stop you from your sin, to put the roadblock in front of your life, not by changing your circumstances, but by through a wise friend. Through the counsel of a loving friend. Through a friend who loves you enough to warn you of the danger of sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, please beware of those so-called friends who simply affirm your ideas and congratulate you on your desires. If you don't have a friend that tells you that you're doing something foolish, you don't have a friend. Good friends speak the truth. Be on the lookout for friends who love you enough to tell you the truth, who are willing to say to you, to tell you something that may be really hard to say. 
Abigail simply encouraged David. We looked at this more last week, but she said, she simply said, obey. Don't disobey the Lord. That can be hard to say. It can. It can come across as seeming unsympathetic or like you don't care about the person's problems. Obey. Don't you care what I'm going through? Don't you realize how hard my marriage is? Don't you realize how much my heart is broken? It can be so hard to encourage people who are hurting to obey, yet that's often the counsel that we need the most. And that's the counsel that a wise friend can give. And in Abigail, David found a wise and surprising counselor from a new friend, one who would speak the truth to him. Surround yourself with people who will talk to you like this. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed how when you surround yourself by people who are godly, how you have increasing desires to walk with God? Have you noticed that? Right? That's how God intended to be. Surround yourself with people that are more mature than you, more godly than you, and willing to tell you the truth, not just tickle your ears. I can't tell you how many times the Lord has delivered me from myself through the wise, loving counsel of a friend. I can't even begin to count all the times that my wife has gently rebuked me or encouraged me to trust the Lord in my pain. I praise God for her. I praise God for his tendency to keep me, to keep us from sin. So let us cry out constantly that he would do so. And let's position ourselves in the right place so that other people have the opportunity and the freedom and are in fact welcome to call us out. There's so much I could say there, but we must keep moving because I'd like to draw your attention also to God's justice in this matter. It's the call to leave vengeance to the Lord. Last week we talked about the difficult situation that some women, perhaps many women, find themselves in. Married to a fool. Married to a Nabal. And you don't have to be married to a foolish man, an extremely foolish man, to learn from this important text. For as we said last week, we all live in a fallen world, and we not only have to deal with our own sinful hearts, but we, almost cert- we most certainly have to deal with the sinful people who God has in his wisdom placed around us. And the Bible makes it clear that when you and I are sinned against, we do not have free reign in our response, but he gives us instructions for how to respond. Did you notice that? God commands you to act a certain way when you're sinned against. The Bible makes it clear that when we are sinned against, this is not a license to sin in response. God has clearly defined in his word how we are to respond when we're sinned against, whether it's major or whether it's minor. And can't we just, I mean, the minor offenses are what make up the bulk of our life. The minor offenses, I mean, that's how you learn how to have a marriage and how you learn to have a family and how you learn to have close friendships. We can't review all that we said last week here, but I do want to pick up again on the importance of leaving room for God's wrath. Because in almost every situation where we find ourselves the victim of a sin, whether it's major or minor, whether it's a cold shoulder or a punch in the face, we are called not to take vengeance but to leave room for God's wrath. This is the solution. If you, have any, if you struggle with anger, this is the solution. To leave room for God's wrath. 
And this applies to every conceivable sin and mistreatment, unless you're a government official and you're called to execute vengeance. And even then, those are not people who have sinned against you, but who have sinned against someone else. But we'll leave that to another day. Whether it comes at the hand of your greatest nemesis, like David and Saul, or whether it's from the one who you thought loved you the most, closest family member, a best friend, whether it's murder, whether it's slander, whether it's theft and betrayal, whether it's gossip. It doesn't matter if it's adultery or a dirty look and a sharp word. This text reminds us of the biblical theme of God's vengeance. God called David, stand down. Stand down, son. I got this. He called him to do that. He called him not to take matters into his own hands, precisely because they were already in God's hands. God was calling David to refrain from vengeance precisely because God would not refrain from taking vengeance. Look down at verse 26. Abigail says to David, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and then from saving with your own hand. That literally, that's, that means taking vengeance, being your own savior. Abigail here was probably quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where early on in the history of the world, God staked his claim as the only rightful judge. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Paul says the same thing in his teaching on Christian relationships, which is explicitly tied to us. This is how we, the church, are to act. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Every sinfully anger word is stealing from God his rightful vengeance. We have no right to sinful, to sinful anger. Yet how much damage has been done in the church because we have disregarded this command? How much damage has been done in your marriage and to your children and to your friendships because you have sinned in response to their sin? Or you've sinned in response to a perception of sin? How often do we use our words to cut and to get even? I realize we don't go slitting throats like David was. But when we are sinned against, what do we want to do? We try to make it right. I'm going to get you back in some way. I'm either not going to talk to you or I'm not going to do the dishes tonight or I'm going to to sleep with my back to you or something, right? Because you did something wrong and that can't happen. How dare you respect me? It's the logic behind our anger. But here we are reminded how we are to respond when people sin against us. By leaving room for God's wrath. You see, when we've been sinned against, that is so hard. It feels completely unnatural. Have you ever tried this? You all know what I'm talking about. Can we, just, can we just be honest here? You all know what I'm talking about. You, you, someone does something wrong. You don't get angry for no reason. You perceive they did something wrong or they did something wrong. Those are the two options, right? 
And so you see that something has been done wrong, and so you want to do something about it. You want to fix it. You want to clear it up. You want them to realize what a fool they are, right? So you take it upon yourself to describe in incredible Shakespearean detail what a fool they are, to your great shame. You see, when we get sinned against, it is so hard, it feels so unnatural, and it's because we have anger. God wants us to be angry at sin, but God never wants us to avenge sin, which is usually what we do with our anger. All throughout the Bible, we see from the very beginning that the very essence of evil is when human beings try to play God. Remember that picture I've given you before? Like the toddler crawling up on the throne trying to be president for the day. We try to play God. And every time that we take our righteous anger and turn it into sinful anger, every time that we try to exact our own justice, we're playing God. We're taking from him what is due him. And we see what's so helpful about this passage is that it doesn't simply encourage us, don't be angry, right? That can feel so empty. Have you ever tried that? Don't be angry. Thanks. Right? See, God always provides what he commands his people to do. And he shows us how we can leave room for God's wrath. You see, in this text, Nabal, who had sinned against David, so David was angry against him, justice came swiftly. Not only did David refrain from exacting vengeance on Nabal the fool, but also so did Abigail, who had been patiently waiting maybe for decades. As she was the one who was married to the fool, she steps aside and leaves room for God's wrath. And this is one of those rare instances where we don't have to wait long. So often we struggle to leave room for God's wrath because everything in us is calling out for justice. Justice now. You can't treat me like this, you think. You can't talk to me like this. And God agrees. And he's going to do something about it. He just doesn't ask you about your thoughts on the timing. He's going to sort it out. Leaving room for God's wrath, it feels like doing nothing, but it's not doing nothing. Because brothers and sisters, you and I do not have a God who is indifferent to sin. You think you're mad about someone sinning against you? Not like God. His vengeance will come down justly on every single sin that has ever been committed, either in hell or on the cross. In verses 37 and 38, God brings vengeance on Nabal. He has a heart attack, I suppose, and dies. The Lord struck Nabal. There's no mistaking who killed Nabal. God kills people. He does that. It's his prerogative. Can we just note how efficiently and how simply God deals with his problems? Right? You try to fix a problem and it just go, it gets worse. You had the problem? I tried to fix something on a car one time. I didn't want to tell you what it was. It was so simple. It turned into a massive project. Because I made it worse, right? Oh, how skilled God is at dealing with righting wrongs. In just 10 short days, the mercy that God was showing Nabal in his life, he gave him breath and oxygen, in all the absurd wealth that he had given him. In just 10 short days, God's mercy gave way to wrath, as it will for every single person who does not flee from his wrath to Christ. 
God's justice is not always this swift, but it is always this sure. You can count on it. The death of Nabal is actually designed, because it's in the scriptures, to build our faith. This will help you battle sinful anger when you have to deal with it this weekend. God is not indifferent to evil. God will not sit idly by and let evil go unpunished. Either the evil that is committed against you or the evil that you commit. So if I could just stop and just say here for a moment. If there are any who are here tonight who are within the hearing of my voice and who have refused or hesitated or have not really repented of their sins, please hear this. Just as surely as God destroyed Nabal, so too will God destroy you if you don't repent of your sins. Just like Nabal, sinners today delude themselves with false security and with the comforts that come from wealth and sinful pleasure. I'm certain that Nabal thought he had more time. He just had this massive party. Some commentators called it an orgy. He just had this massive party. He was eating and drinking, but he did not think that tomorrow he would die. Perhaps he was going to get his life together soon. He was in good health, we, we suppose. Surely I have a little bit more time, he thought, but alas, he did not. You have no idea when God will end your life. You have no idea when your pursuit of pleasure will come to an awkward, immediate, unsatisfying end. Remember the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12? The man who did nothing but keep building bigger barns for all of his stuff. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? The hurricane of God's wrath is coming. This is not a watch. This is an alert. And there's only one shelter that won't get blown away. And that's Jesus Christ. The only stable shelter for the wrath of God. You either hide in him or you become destroyed. And Jesus has promised that for all who flee to him, for all who hide in him, they can and they will be safe. For Jesus himself has taken on the full hurricane of God's wrath. And though he died, it destroyed him. He rose from the dead and now he is able and capable and willing to save all who hide in him. But for those of us who know Christ, we must remember that one day God's mercy will give way to wrath. And so for us, our wrath must give way to mercy. We are not called to imitate God in his wrath like this. Back off, leave room for him. As God's mercy gives way to wrath for sinners, let our, mercy, let our wrath give way to mercy. And though it's comforting to know that justice will eventually come and that is helpful, there's a more powerful resource that's available to us. And justice will come, you can be sure of that, and that helps, but there's more for those of us who are in Christ. Here's the key. David was able to show Nabal mercy only after God had shown him mercy. You catch that in the text? Just think about it. This is a story where God delivers David from his sin. 
But God destroys Nabal for his sin. Why didn't God destroy David? He delivers David for his sin and he destroys Nabal for his sin. Why does David get grace and Nabal get justice? Herein lies the key. David was able to back off and leave room for God's wrath precisely because he came to see that he himself deserves God's wrath. Some of you are sitting here thinking, man, I hope my wife or my husband or mom, whoever, hears the sermon. They need to hear the sermon. No, you need to hear the sermon, right? Our wrath towards others will only give way to mercy when we realize that God's wrath towards us has given way to mercy. If God, the just judge, gives me mercy for my sin, should I not also give mercy to others? their sin? If I am one who, like Nabal, deserves to be struck dead in a moment, and God gives me mercy like David, what should I give to those who sin against me? Mercy. If God is willing not to pounce on me in the moment of my sin, what right do I have to pounce on others in the moment of their sin? Brothers and sisters, the key is this, the gospel. A deep awareness of how desperately you need saving. Not abstract like sort of keep me out of hell stuff. Man, that's some other, other guy's religion. I'm talking about a cross chart. A sense that your cross is huge. That the gap between God's holiness and your sin is massive. And only Christ could come and fill that void. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel is he satisfied the wrath of God and he did it completely. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. The key of the gospel. This is the key to obeying texts like I read earlier. Let all bitterness and wrath and all anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Is there any clamor in your house? Any slander? Any bitterness? Let it all be put away from you. If you claim to follow Christ, you cannot let bitterness dwell in your heart untouched. Because it's anti-Christian. It doesn't even make sense with the gospel. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another. Other sinful people, yeah. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. How much? As God in Christ has forgiven you. You will never find mercy to, give, to forgive those who sin against you until you come to marvel at the mercy that has been given to you. Some of us claim to know Christ, but we have never been undone at the sight of our own sin. And that's why your relationships are a mess. And that's why our, uh, our sinning is uncontrolled because we are not in awe of God's mercy. In other words, the key, the gospel is the key to all of your relationship problems. Because you will never, ever, ever, ever be called to forgive someone else more than God has already forgiven you. And until you recognize that, your relationships are going to be full of bitterness and strife and malice. The gospel is the key. But that brings us to another point. David was given absurd mercy. That's what God does, isn't it? He's given absurd mercy. Can we not marvel together for a moment at the grace of God? 
I mean, just think about what he did for David. At the beginning of the last chapter, after taking one step forward, David is here taking two steps back, maybe five, as he sets out in a murderous rage to bring his own vengeance on Nabal. But God in his mercy stopped him. And not only did he stop him, he actually used his sin as an opportunity to bless him. Who does that? Who does that? Amazingly, Abigail reminds David of God's promise to him in verses 28, 29, and 30. So David gets the reminder of God's promises to him, and not only that, but God actually doesn't bail on them. He keeps them in spite of David's sin. And not only that, if that wasn't enough, David ends up with a wife out of the situation. Granted, it's like a third wife, but he ends up with another wife out of the situation. David left home a premeditating murderer and came home planning a wedding. Now, planning a wedding stresses me, so I realize that breaks down the illustration a little bit, but I don't have to deal with that. But just think about it. Look at God's grace. Has God not treated you in this way? Is this not a wonderful picture of God's grace, his standard treatment towards his children? Isn't it? Brothers and sisters, we must not be dull to his providence. We must have eyes. We must develop eyes to see it. And the story of David and Abigail and Nabal helps us. So as we close, we would be remiss or perhaps even naive if we did not admit that King David makes us a little nervous. Makes me a little nervous. I mean, you realize this is the guy to which all of the promises of the kingdom, namely the gospel, hinge upon. And he seems a little unstable to me, right? And if you know what comes in 2 Samuel, we know our suspicions are founded. Yes, he can kill giants, but he also has a pornography problem. You see what I'm talking about? Can we trust this guy? Sure, he's better than Saul. Or is he? But is the kingdom really safe in this guy's hands? Can all the promises that God made to Israel really come through this guy? I mean, though David's inconsistencies and the mercy that he has received, that, that gives us comfort as sinners, especially in light of this incredible, staggering, creative providence of God. But it leaves us a little nervous, doesn't it? And that's because there's tension. The point should be clear to us. The kingdom and all of the promises that we have just sung about and that we hope in, all of these great kingdom promises can only be found and realized in the true king. Those promises, that kingdom is not safe with David. We need more of God's providence. So we're left longing and anticipating a true obedient king. One who doesn't take matters into his own hands, even when he's sinned against. But leaves the vengeance to the Lord. And only one servant can be trusted with this kingdom. And that is precisely who we find in Jesus Christ. The son of David. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your staggering mercy that you've shown each one of us. For those of us who know you, we rejoice at the incredible inheritance that we have waiting for us and the privilege to call you Father, not enemy. 
For those of us who don't know you, we have enjoyed your kindness with food and oxygen and family and marriage and all sorts of blessings and mercy. But I pray, Father, that we would all come to you submitting to you as Lord and repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. Let us leave tonight not as a depressed, sad, mopey people, but as a people full of joy because of all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for him and we ask this in his name, our Savior. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.